Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome back to another episode of Decision Vision, the podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic. Rather than making recommendations because everyone's circumstances are different, we talk to subject matter experts about how they would recommend thinking about that decision. Hi, I'm Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia, which is where we are recording today. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please also consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. Today, we're going to talk about splitting up a business partnership, or some people call it a business divorce. And uh, uh, for for purely selfish reasons, this is a a topic that's near and dear to my heart, because this actually happens to be a big part of my practice. Uh, Often, though not every time that there's a business split, somebody wants to know what the number is that one person should be bought out at, and, and um, so that's the part of my practice where I'm sort of a, a purveyor of misery. Um, but the thing about business divorces is that they can be equally as dramatic, equally as painful, equally as tense, and yes, in some levels, equally as entertaining as, as watching a, uh, a conventional marital divorce. Uh, but we don't have to just take my word for it. We're bringing in a subject matter expert, and joining us today to help us work through this decision process is my good friend Bill Piercy of Berman Fink Van Horn here in Atlanta. Uh, Bill works with business owners to bring successful resolution to disputes concerning the management and control of businesses. Frequently, this means representing partners or shareholder groups who find themselves embroiled in controversy with their co-owners. After more than two decades of practice in the corporate divorce arena, Bill understands the challenges and the opportunities that arise from internal dissension within management, operations, and ownership of a closely held business. Through hard work, candid advice, and effective advocacy, Bill helps clients achieve successful outcomes. Bill was named a super lawyer in the Atlanta legal community by Atlanta Magazine in 2012 and as a rising star by that same periodical in 2006. 2009, 2010, and 2011. Bill is a member of the 2012 Class of Leadership DeKalb. Bill previously served on the executive committee of the Gators for Business arm of the Atlanta Gator Club and is a member of the board of directors of the Sole Practitioner Small Firm Section of the Atlanta Bar Association. In addition to practicing in the corporate divorce arena, Bill wrote, has written a book on the subject, Life's Too Short for a Bad Business Partner. Bill's book is available for purchase at Amazon.com. I would also say a bookseller near you, but those are pretty much gone now, especially I think Bill's uh, Barnes & Noble is, is, is history, about to be history. And Bill has an undergraduate degree from the University of Florida and earned his law degree from Emory University in Atlanta. And I understand his parents did not bribe either institution in order to get in there. So we're getting the real deal. Bill Piercy, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. So – you got kids. I've known you a long time. You're a busy, successful attorney doing important things. Why do you find the time to write this book on business divorce? I found myself saying the same things to clients 
over and over again. And it occurred to me one day, why don't I write this stuff down? Uh, it might be easier or better for people to digest it that way. When someone has dissension in their business, uh, particularly with the other owners, that can be a very lonely time and a lonely place to be. You can't really go talk to the CPA to ask for a referral to a lawyer because, well, he answers to your business partner too. You certainly don't want to go to clients and have them know that there's some sort of problem with the business. You don't tell vendors. You don't tell lenders. And so sort of like when your leg hurts and you go on to Google or WebMD to figure out what's going on, um, people would find my blog and uh, find me through that. And it occurred to me that if I created maybe a little more comprehensive guide, I might be able to help even more people. Okay. Uh, you know, that's I, I'd never thought of that, but you're right. I mean – all the venues that you would normally associate with getting help are close to you because the last thing you want broadcasted to anybody is I've got a potential business dispute internally. That freaks out employees. It freaks out advisors. It freaks out clients, vendors. Pretty much everybody with an earshot gets freaked out by that. It's absolutely so that, right. So that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that makes sense. So – they say that death and taxes are the two things in the world that are inevitable. Is the same true of business partnerships? Are, are business partnerships kind of hired to be fired? I mean, they, they should be, right? Marriage is supposed to last forever or until death do us part, but that's not the way business partnerships are, are supposed to be. You come together, you work together with the common goal of making some money and hopefully – Everybody leaves with their pockets loaded and as friends. Sometimes they don't end that way, and my practice is uh, typically revolves around those situations where folks are less than happy uh, as their parting ways. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I did not expect that answer. That's I learned something, and, and you're right. I mean, you know, the, the the notion of death do us part. Eh, what the heck? My wife will never listen to this. But we we know that that that. That convention came into play when the life expectancy was about 42 and by then you're expected to die of, of black death or a rotten chicken bone or having somebody impale you with a hoe basically, right? Um, and now things have changed that, that till death do you part is a much larger commitment, right? And I think when we think of, of, of a partnership as intimate as a business partnership, maybe – you know, I, I have to admit I think of it as a lifelong – engagement, but maybe you're right. It's healthy that you should kind of plan for the split. And maybe if it works out that it is, you, you, you both, as a two business partner, you kind of, you die lovingly in, in each other's arms on a pile full of money, right? That's right. Maybe that's the optimal outcome. Um, but that's sort of a rarity. So sort of planning for that in advance, I guess, makes you more prepared, right? Absolutely. Okay. So... Um, what, what, where do the cracks start? I mean, you and I could trade war stories probably all afternoon, but we don't have unlimited time, unfortunately. But I'd like to hear from you, and maybe I'll jump in, but where, where, do, those, where do the cracks start to show? Where do, what are the things that tend to be the kernels that ultimately result in a dispute that is most likely to lead to some kind of split? Sure. Lack of communication is huge. Um, 
lack of transparency is distinguished in my mind from lack of communication because it's one thing for everybody to be talking. It's another thing to actually reveal the financial statements or the underlying transactions that one partner may be responsible for as opposed to the other. Um, The lack of a shared vision among the partners, one wants fast growth, the other doesn't, uh, and, and tied to that maybe a divergent comfort level with risk or with debt. Some people, Rob, Peter, pay Paul, let's run to the races, and other people want all kinds of money in the bank before they do anything, and that can cause a lot of tension among owners of a business. Disparity in contribution, right? It's owned 50-50, but one guy's doing 80% of the work. You can see why he might get frustrated. Um, and a lack of clearly defined roles. Sometimes early on, we're all going to jump in. We're all going to do everything that needs to be done to make this a success, and they're excited. And 10 years down the line, right, it, it would make sense for, the, for one person with a particular set of uh, – skills to do certain aspects of the business and someone else to do other tasks. And sometimes those either formally or informally happen. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's, well, you were in the office, so you did it, or I thought you were going to do it. And that can lead to problems. Yeah, that communication transparency part, you know, really resonates with me, with the partnership Splits in which I've been involved in appraising the the the, the core business. It, it has always struck me that you know if if a few honest conversations for thirty minutes had happened two years prior to when they've hired me, we may very well not be here, right? And and, and the transparency to me is connected with surprise, right? When, That's right. When, when a surprise happens in the business, or in my case, if you know, one of the things I, I really insist on is if a company hires me to buy sell, that you know, I want to interview both partners, even if one of them is retaining me, and try to get them all involved in that and engage in that conversation because um, you're more likely to get buy-in if there's not a surprise if you kind of see the freight train coming, right? And a lack of transparency leads to surprise, surprise leads to anger, and then that leads to imagination. <laughs> That's exactly right. And that's where you kind of get the runaway train, right? Well put. Um, so so are, are, there, are there reasons that are kind of avoidable? You know, we, I mean, we just talked a little about, about communication, but w- when you kind of look at that portfolio of, of partnership disputes, what are the ones you see most often that maybe resonate with what I described, which is, geez, why are we here? <laughs> Right, you know, like the old cartoon. If Woody had gone right to the police, this never would have happened. That sort of thing. Are, are there things in your mind that 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 your patterns that you see that kind of have you kind of asking yourself why are we at this point, or are we sure this is not reparable? Yeah, it, it it's the whatever the problem is, it's festering for a while, and so it's not necessarily. I mean, communication's a huge one, but whatever the issue is, the people, the the partners involved aren't addressing it head on. They aren't confronting it with each other. And, you know, from my perspective, if there's 
tension in that way, I would encourage folks to consider ending the business relationship, comma, in its current form. I'm not saying that every fight should lead to divorce. But if there's a persistent problem, the underlying structure isn't working, right? And so it may just need to be fixed, but I find it's often more productive to go into that fix with, you know what, the old way is done. We are starting from scratch, and we're going to talk about how often we're going to communicate, and we're going to talk about who's responsible for what, and we're going to talk about who stays in whose lane, and we're going to decide what level of commitment and what level of compensation we're going to have. And I think those are the business relationships that can be salvaged, if that's the right word. Yeah, so I, I'm going to go off script a little bit. I think that's, I think that's really smart, if nothing else, because I, I had never thought of it that way. The notion that there's this binary choice, that you either keep the partnership as is, baby and bathwater, or you dump baby and bathwater out, it's a false choice, isn't it? Right? That there's, an, there's an option to say, uh, to consider, you know, maybe the, this relationship, the way it's structured, isn't working. But what if we just sort of took a blank sheet of paper, literally a blank sheet of paper, that clean slate, what would we do differently to kind of make us both happy? And maybe there's a way to salvage that. That's my idea. And, and I'm curious, what, what's your batting average with that? Have you suggested that? Have you gotten traction with that? I have. Not a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, by the time folks get to me and they're paying a lawyer by the hour to fight, they're generally pretty mad. Right. Um, I, I think that there are probably a lot of transactional lawyers that do this sort of thing all the time. I'm a litigator. When they get to me, we're typically filing lawsuits or threatening lawsuits or being threatened with a lawsuit. Right. And so it's pretty rare. But I do have one shining uh, moment example where I helped and uh, my opposing counsel was of a similar mindset. And we got these folks to agree to have breakfast at Shoney's every Friday morning with a checklist. And they would talk through that checklist because despite all their hating each other, they were printing money. And it just made sense to keep printing money. And as far as I know, they're still printing money today. No kidding. Well, good for you. Well, you know, if the law thing doesn't work out, maybe you can be a counselor. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe as a second career. Um, so you, you've, you've written this book and you've done it because it's an opportunity to kind of avoid the, the repetition. Um, and it's, it's, it's a quick read. It's certainly not going to be mistaken for a Russian novel. Mm -hmm. But even that having been said, if, if you wanted a reader to take one thing away from that book, what do you think that would be? To focus on the future, where you're headed, where you want to be, and not on the past and what your partner did or didn't do and how angry you are about it. Um, if you're at the point where you're reading a book called Life's Too Short for a Bad Business Partner or talking to a business litigator or to a business valuation person because your business is uh, in some sort of crisis, then you've already kind of lost, and now it's time to stop the bleeding 
and to focus on going somewhere else and making some money, it it is easy to let that anger or fear consume you, and it's just not productive. Yeah, and and I will attest that I've never I've never had to kind of go as far as as a litigation, but I've been involved in in business partnerships where um, I've been upset. And I think that advice is so good that, you know, on the one hand, you do feel like you've been wounded somehow. And you've been wounded in what is a really is a very intimate relationship. You've placed your you've placed your your financial well being and that of your family in somebody else's hands to a certain extent. That's right? right. And that means that the second that is even a whiff of being threatened in some way, right? It's it's very hard not to react like you're basically a super tightened piano string. Right, I'm not suggesting it's easy. Yeah, it's just... <laughs> um, and there's a lot of deep breaths and whatnot that sort of have to take place. And I think that focusing kind of on because you can't, you can kind of remedy the past. You, you, you can a lot of what you do is to kind of recover things from the past, the past injuries. But at the end of the day, everything's out in front of us. I get right. That's I guess, right. right? Um, okay, so so you, you talked about. You know, by the time you get to reading a book, by the time you get to talking to somebody like you and and uh, and and paying your fees and so forth, what what is that trigger? How do how do I know? Or how, yeah, how do I know that I'm so mad that I got I got to contact Bill Piercy and help have him help me figure this out and have some combination of making me whole slash extracting horrible revenge, right? Um, versus, yeah, I'm kind of ticked off, but it's really not, is it, do I really want to get a lawyer involved? You know what I mean? What's, I, that, what's that Rubicon? What's that inflection point? Sure. Um, it, so it, it's nice when folks have the option of, right, just being mad or annoyed. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Um, Frankly, in either circumstance, I would encourage folks to get a handle pretty quickly on what rights and obligations they have to and from the business, to and from the other owners, to and from lenders and landlords. And and that may mean you know, getting a hold of your shareholders' agreement, seeing you can't remember if you guaranteed the lease on the building or not, those kinds of things. Some people are pretty organized, and sometimes those documents are pretty easy to read. Sometimes it takes a lot of work. Sometimes there is no document. Sometimes it's on the back of a napkin or it's just a handshake, right? And a good lawyer can help folks understand the the law will impose some some order on your situation but it's not intuitive always what those rules are so i would encourage folks to do it and as for the trigger as to when you start investigating those things i mean when you don't trust your partner anymore when you just can't see yourself being in business with them anymore or you know on a shorter time frame when your little key doesn't work in the office lock one day. Okay, that's or you, a trigger. Or you get served with a summons. I mean, those sorts of things. Okay, yeah, or as I've had with a client, just all of a sudden one day gets walked out of the, gets walked out of the building. That's right. Right? 
Um, obviously, there's going to be a call to maybe multiple counsel at that point. So I was going to ask one question, but I want to, I want to inter, interject or intercede one question. Um, obviously, one sign that a business breakup is, is coming is that summons, that walking out, right? But are there more subtle signs that it's sort of happening, but it may, may not be a, that apparent and you're kind of like the frog in the water you don't realize it's a business breakup until you're the boiled frog in the water you know what i mean there are there absolutely are it trust that spidey sense or yeah. trust your gut if it seems like maybe boy my partner seems to be having a lot of meetings with a closed door or out of the office or He's kicked the can down the road on our weekly catch-up meeting four weeks in a row. And I keep, I keep asking about the financial statements, and I keep being told I'll see them tomorrow. You know, we all have other things to do, and not everybody turns everything in on time. But when those things start to lag and you start to get suspicious, listen to your gut. Okay. Trust but verify. Yep. So when when that spidey sense then kicks in, what 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 should you do? First thing, top of the to do list: gather whatever information you can that will help you and your team understand what rights and obligations you have and your partner has, because that will be hugely determinative about your next steps and, frankly, the, the obstacles and opportunities that you have. Now, do you have to be – do you have to treat a little bit differently when – I mean, you're a company insider. On the one hand, I could certainly see advising somebody to be aggressive because if you, if you think you might get locked out of the business – that means you may be locked out of your access to that information, and the only way you're going to get is through discovery, right? Um, but on the other hand, do I have to be careful if I'm in that scenario because I may be acquiring and taking information that isn't rightfully mine to have custody? Or is it I'm an owner of the business, I ought, therefore I have the right to custody? Is there a balance there or a, a maze there that has to be navigated? There's absolutely a complicated maze, and you've touched on a really good point. It's um, as an owner of the business, you generally have the right to look behind the curtain and see whatever's there, but property that belongs to the business doesn't belong to you just because you own a piece of the business. It's It's not so much taking that information to yourself, I wouldn't uh, counsel anybody to email the customer and pricing list to their Gmail account, um, but I would encourage them to access it regularly and to ensure that they have that access. You know, sometimes the division of labor leads partners to where one's never met the landlord or the IT guy or the banker. And all of a sudden, those things get shut off. It's much harder to turn it back on when the relationship manager at the bank has never heard of you and the IT guy doesn't really know who you are. But if you have, not saying you take over that responsibility, but every once in a while you stick your head in and you make sure those folks know you, it's much easier to restore your access should your partner do something nefarious. So, so one of the lessons here is 
in a partnership, protect yourself, make sure that there are no key relationships and information sources that are proprietary to your other business partner, right? Maybe you'll never have to call upon that, but if you do, you'll be glad that that you made that effort to have that line of communication, that that recognition. Absolutely. Guess, right? So sort of sort of a hypothetical let's let's say that that maybe there's a bunch of information on a on a laptop right it's a company laptop it's one that has not necessarily been assigned to me could but i but that laptop has information that i think is material to my potential case going forward is that something that i that, that's something i may be forced to kind of leave behind or can i take it or is it is that a, it depends kind of deal i mean it's a depends kind of deal it, is it used in the day-to-day business by you physically taking it are you depriving the business of the opportunity to use that information mm. i'm not so so worried about where the laptop sits it's can the partner access the other partner access the data on it um, just because it's sitting in your living room? Maybe. Maybe it's linked cloud or they can call you up and say, hey, I want to come look at it. And if you allow that, I'm much less concerned about mm-hmm. that contact, that conduct than one partner excluding the other from some critical piece of the business. Right. So don't, don't, don't take the laptop and then put it in a safe deposit box or bury it or something like That's that. That's probably right. Okay. So um, what are the most common mistakes you see business owners soon to be splitting partners make during that process that they hadn't made those mistakes and might have had a better outcome? I think that we've touched on really the two big ones already here today, and that's taking company property and assuming that because you own a piece of the company, you can – you can take this equipment or this data and either – use it for competitive purposes or exclude the other folks in the business from using it. That's number one. And number two, just not having keys to the castle, not knowing how to turn your access to the network back on or get back in the front door or whatever it may be. Uh, I'm going to go off script again because I think this is an important question. What about the scenario, and I've got two clients in the scenario now, the majority, the majority shareholder, um, basically fires the minority shareholder, cuts off their income, cuts off access to bank accounts. Um, h- how is that properly handled? Can, can the majority shareholder typically just do that? Is it is it that simple, or is there for the minority shareholder is there a remedy, or does the majority shareholder have to go through kind of a process to do that legally? So the the Firing, um, pretty much if uh, the majority owner can say, you know what, we're going to hire out whatever work you've been doing or I'm going to start doing it. And it's a complicated question, but generally can show that minority owner to the door. But access to information, if you own a piece of the company, you have a statutory right generally to review the books and records of the business. And it's it's a different right, whether it's a corporation or an LLC, but generally you've got that right. And you're supposed to just be able to write a letter and then be provided reasonable access and an opportunity at your cost to copy whatever information you want to copy. 
And if that information is not provided, um, there's generally a expedited legal remedy for um, ensuring your access to that information. Basically, it means filing a lawsuit, but that lawsuit is supposed to and typically does move faster than your average case. Got it. So, you know, not, not all business divorces go to court, right, thankfully, but some of them do. I think you've touched upon this, but I want to make sure that the point is clear. Um, what in your mind distinguishes the amicable or at least non-hostile <laughs> partnership dissolution from the all-out, knock-down, drag-out street fight of litigation? Sure. Fundamentally, you know, people change their interest in the business, change their interest in being involved in the business and what they want to do can change over time. Those are legitimate bases for folks just deciding to part ways and go do something else. Um, Where it turns hostile and expensive, um, typically – I mean, without getting too philosophical about it, it's pride, greed, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, and sloth, right? The seven deadly sins or some combination of them that cause people not only to decide they don't want to be in business together but decide that I want all the business or whatever their – dispute may be, that's those typical, those raw emotions are often what's behind it. That's interesting. That, that, that's a heck of a checklist. I've <laughs> <laughs> been around a long time now. Um, so have you found, I mean, people talk a lot about buy-sell agreements and you know, for the listeners, a buy-sell agreement is just the rules by which the two or more partners agree that a share will be bought out either by the company of one or more shareholders or between each other when somebody's going to get out of the partnership. Have you found them to be helpful? I mean, are they as useful as advertised? So in some, typically when they're as useful as advertised, I never see it, right? Because it doesn't result in litigation. And so the mm-hmm. transactional lawyers that are deal makers um, – do them and do them well all the time. And I think they provide a valuable set of rules for agree when you're agreeable, right? And so everyone has come to it. We've already established how we're going to decide how much and when somebody pays somebody else for their share in the business. And we're going to already decide ahead of time on these triggering mechanisms, And so it provides, I think, an efficient and useful tool for helping people through what can sometimes be a pretty difficult situation. You know, that said, when I see them, um, either there's a legitimate dispute about language and who's got the right to do what, or somebody's gaming the system, right? It it may be that, that one partner or faction has significantly more resources than the other. And so a a common buy-sell arrangement is one in which uh, one partner makes an offer to buy the other out at a fixed price, 
uh, per share, and the recipient of that offer then has the option. I can either take that offer or turn it around and buy out the offeror at the same price, right? So that that ought to result in a fair offer because you don't know if you're going to be a buyer or a seller, right? And it probably most of the time does. I never see it because I'm a business litigator. I see it when maybe one side has more money than the other and it thinks, you know what, even if I make a lowball offer, he still can't come up with the cash to buy me out. Or the insider trading kind of I know something about the business that's about to happen that he doesn't know. So I'm either going to offer more than fair market value or try to get myself bought out before things go down the tubes by, you know, manipulating my offer. So those are unfortunately the kinds of things that I see on a fairly regularly basis with buy-sell, but I'm, I'm certainly not against them. Mm-hmm. I think in a lot of situations, they can be very useful. I, I see similar manipulation in particular if, if the, the buy-sell price is either a set number or a set formula, right? Because that, that set number or set formula could be right whenever the buy-sell was initiated, but now we're five years down the road, the company has changed, the market has changed, the economy has changed, that price is going to benefit someone, right? right? And then there's at least a financial incentive to manipulate or force a transaction because you know you're either going to be bought dear or you'll have an opportunity to sell cheap, right? That's absolutely right. And I'm guessing that that's also a scenario that might come your way, even though there's a buy-sell. I think in those cases, the buy-sells actually can do more harm than good because they motivate the tra- the kind of behavior they're trying to avoid. That's right. Um, so uh, I'm going to switch gears here on, on more of a governance question. So I would imagine if I'm sort of a general counsel for a company, internal, external, doesn't matter, I have to imagine the worst nightmare I could think of is I'm in the middle now of a business partnership because – I'm going to be asked to take sides, right? It's just inevitable. Um, what, what, but on the other hand, I mean, it, uh, on one level, golly, you know, does the company have to have an attorney and both sides have to have their own counsel and combine your, your run on the clock at $2,000 an hour or something like that? H- have you seen that? Is that a legitimate concern? How, how does that get resolved? If you're a corporate counsel, or if you're involved in that, what can you reasonably expect your corporate corporate counsel to do and not do? Sure. They, they cannot do for you. That's right. Um, the, the corporate counsel can certainly help partners to access the information that they need to determine their respective rights and obligations like we've talked about. What, that, what the company's lawyer can't do, what would be a conflict of interest is for the company's attorney to uh, offer advice or suggestions to one partner or the other, or God forbid both, on what their respective rights are or what positions or strategies they might employ. That The company's lawyer's got to look out for the company and really needs to be careful um, 
not to uh, be answering to more than one chief at any one time. Now, I think you said, God forbid both. So uh, I want to I expand on that a little bit because I can see a scenario where maybe somebody, maybe a council feels like they're doing the right thing, right? If they feel like somehow they're giving equal advice to both parties, there's no conflict of interest. Can you expand upon those? That sounds like a landmine. I mean, yeah, it sounds to me like a call to your malpractice carrier at some point okay. because eventually, likely, one partner's not going to be happy with the advice they got, or even if they are happy with it, they may see an opportunity, right? And and because desperate times call for desperate measures, yep. and uh, really just it, it doesn't help anybody to do that. It, partners would do well to go get their own private independent counsel, even if it's just a, hey, run through this with me for an hour and help me understand where I stand, um, as opposed to relying on someone who has multiple folks to answer to and may or may not have your best interest at heart. Now, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, there's a nuclear option out there where if there's enough of an impasse at least in our state in Georgia, I do not know if this is true in all 50 states. You have the law degree, I don't. But a, a, a judge could actually dissolve a company if there's a sufficient impasse. Is that correct? And what are the circumstances under which that might actually occur? It, there absolutely is. It's called judicial disillusion. And there are two general scenarios uh, when that can happen. One is, and I think it's the more common of the two deadlock. And that would be very common if you've got two partners and each one of them owns 50% of the company and one of them wants to franchise and go national and the other wants a sole location and to become the master of one particular uh, area of town in which whatever they do, they do. right. One wants white, the other wants black. They can't agree. They have equal voting power. The company can't do anything. In that circumstance, a judge can order that the company be dissolved, and we'll talk about that. I'll talk about that just a little more after I talk about the other uh, factor. The other is waste. If the um, one partner, often the majority owner, is uh, taking advantage of the company, paying unequal distributions, just taking money and not even calling it a distribution out of the company or steering work to other businesses. All of those things can happen. And in those circumstances, a, a judge can order, you know what, this is never going to work. The majority isn't taking care of the minority here, not fulfilling his fiduciary duties. I'm just going to order this company dissolved. And basically... Uh, a receiver is typically appointed, some third party. It might be a business broker. It might be a real estate agent. It kind of depends on what the company's assets are. The The assets are, are marshaled, gathered all in one place, and then sold, sometimes on the courthouse steps on foreclosure day, other times in a more orderly fashion. And then that money is used to pay the company's debts. And if there's any money left over, it's divided up pro rata among the owners of the company. And just like that? It is not a simple process. Okay. It's not an 
inexpensive process and you're never going to get top dollar for a business that's being sold on the first Tuesday of the month. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, it's a, a slightly dignified fire sale. That's, that's exactly right. I, I'm not even sure it's dignified. Okay. Fair enough. I certainly don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, well, we're, we're running out of time. I, I wish we, we could talk more about this. And there's, there's a lot of war stories I know that we could swap. But if somebody wants to learn more, they're thinking about they may be in this situation, think they may be in this situation, want to learn more. How can they contact you to, to benefit from your expertise? I am fairly easy to find on the Internet. Again, my name is Bill Piercy. I practice law with Berman Fink Van Horn. The Fern website is BFV law.com and my email address is b piercy p-i-e-r-c-y at b-f-v law.com all right well thank you that's going to wrap it up for today's program i'd like to thank bill piercy so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us today we'll be exploring a new topic each week so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision you have clear vision when making it If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsor is Brady Ware and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.